Welcome to episode 76 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell. I'm a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. And this week, we welcome a new member to our team. I'm Kate Rowland. I'm a family physician and an associate professor at Rush University. Hi, I'm John Hickner, family physician, editor-in-chief of the Journal of Family Practice. Hi, I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPalms. Uh, welcome, Kate. Say, listen, next week we've got some fun dates on the calendar. We've got Star Wars Day, Cinco de Mayo, and Mother's Day. So, uh, Kate, I believe that you are a mom, so happy Mother's Day. And uh, to all of our listeners who are mothers, happy Mother's Day. Thanks, Henry. On this podcast, we highlight patient-oriented evidence that matters, or poems. If you want to get all of them, subscribe to Essential Evidence Plus, where you get a poem daily and a great primary care reference with over 800 chapters and thousands of decision support tools. Check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. The opinions expressed on primary care update are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. You can get free CME credit from the Illinois Academy. For listening to this podcast, just go to iafp.mclms.com. Net to claim it. I'll repeat that uh, address a little later in the podcast. This week, we're going to discuss inhaled steroids for patients with COVID, regulatory issues with treating opioid use disorders, management of foot fractures, and one other surprise topic. Inhaled budesonide reduces likelihood of hospitalization in patients with mild COVID is the first um, study, and it was published in Lancet Respiratory Medicine. It was from a, a team of researchers at Oxford University. And it's, I think, potentially a game changer for us. So we know that oral steroids are really only helpful in more severely ill patients with COVID-19. And there was a, actually a trend toward worse outcomes in those with mild disease, perhaps by suppressing immune function at a systemic level. But there have been observational studies that have shown an association between using inhaled steroids and having better outcomes, especially early in the, um, in the illness. So these researchers identified 146 adults. They all had less than seven days of cough and either fever or anosmia, or they had both. Uh, they were randomized to inhaled budesonide in a dose of 800 micrograms twice daily or to usual care. So that's a fairly high dose, uh, more than the usual maintenance dose. A nurse swabbed everybody for SARS-CoV-2. 94% were positive. The groups uh, looked the same at randomization. A few withdrew consent before getting the intervention. Uh, one needed urgent care before they could be swabbed. Uh, one just didn't like using the inhaler. So they had two analyses. One was the total 146. The other was 139 who actually completed the study. So patients in the budesonide group were told to stop using the inhaler when they'd recovered, which occurred after a median of seven days. All patients were followed for 28 days. And limitations are it doesn't look like the outcomes were assessed in a blinded manner. Study was stopped a bit early due to the large benefit. Uh, so that's a hint, large benefit. In the overall population, the primary outcome of urgent emergency department visit or hospitalization occurred less often in the budesonide group, three versus 15%. The NNT is eight. Magnitude of benefit was similar if you just looked at the per protocol population, 1% versus 14%. So that's really a, a huge difference. Both were statistically significant. Time to recovery was also a bit faster by about a day. Symptom resolution was more rapid. Adverse events were minimal. Um, so some limitations are uh, open label design, 
early trial shutdown and the fact that it was open label, but this was a large magnitude of benefit. And there are actually seven other similar trials underway. And I'm anxiously awaiting the results of those. But for now, I think this could potentially be a game changer. John, what do you think? I agree. This is very encouraging to see something that is inexpensive or relatively inexpensive and works. Another question out there is whether nasal steroids could have a similar effect. And I hope at least one of these trials is looking at nasal steroids, which are even cheaper. There was a physician in Texas who swore by this. And as late as last summer, he was starting to advise his patients to use nasal steroids for prevention, at least prevention of symptoms. I doubt it would prevent infection. But a lot to learn here. This is very encouraging news. Yeah. Kate, any further thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think where we are with COVID is we get evidence like this and we say, great, because we have nothing else, this is good enough for us to start doing this, recommending this for people that we talk to over video, over phone when people, or even, you know, discharge from the ED with mild COVID symptoms because we have so little else that we know works. I do wonder if it's going to hold up, you know, when we get those other studies, when we meta-analyze them, if this is going to turn out to be, you know, good enough uh, a year from now. But for right now, I think it's certainly good enough. We got nothing else. Yeah. And I think, you know, the magnitude of benefit may, you know, change somewhat when we throw in some other studies, other populations, maybe other inclusion criteria. They are looking at a couple of different steroids as well. I think uh, uh, fluticasone was in one of the trials. I went to clinicaltrials.gov. But, you know, um, like you said, it's very limited what we can do. And uh, particularly for the kind of patients we're caring for in primary care, this is really, uh, to me, a game changer. So some good news. Henry has, has something else to add. Yeah, well, you know, I'm the wet blanket. So, uh, so, Kate, thank you for throwing out that cautionary word here. I'm just annoyed that, it, you know, it doesn't take a lot of effort to boost the quality of a randomized trial. And I'm just annoyed that they didn't take one or two extra steps to have at least some level of blinding or some other measures of quality. That's all. Yes. Um, and I'd be more concerned about that if it was like a subjective symptom outcome, but it was basically a decision by the patient to seek care in a hospital or ED. So, you know, that's it potentially could be biased as well because the patient's thinking, oh, I didn't get the inhaler. I better go in. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. I know from uh, talking to uh, physicians in the UK, getting placebos can be a pain. It can be really, really difficult to get. I, I know trials that have failed because they couldn't get the placebo um, that they needed for the trial. So um, maybe that was part of it. Anyway, Henry, you're going to go on and tell us a little bit about the quiz. Yeah, before I do the quiz, I just need to give a quick update since we were talking about COVID treatment. In the past, we have talked about uh, bamlanivimab or in its previous form, Lycov555 for treating outpatients with a single infusion. Well, um, as of uh, five days ago, the FDA withdrew its emergency use authorization because of increasing resistance, uh, driven largely by the rise of new variants. Okay. Well, tell us about the quiz now. All right. So the quiz is also in the COVID realm. Uh, which of the following have been found to be effective in preventing COVID in persons at risk of contracting it? One, ivermectin. Two, ivermectin plus iota carrageenan. Three, hydroxychloroquine. Four, ramipril. Five, bromhexine. 
Stay tuned. All right, Kate, you're going to tell us about something interesting you've just read. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's what I'm here for, is uh, to share with you just interesting bit, tidbits that I have picked up from the newspapers. Uh, so this week, this has been in the news, uh, a new clinical practice guideline from the Department of Health and Human Services for the Treatment of Opioid Use Disorder, OUD. Spoiler, uh, I'll get, get into this, but the X waiver is dead. Uh, the X waiver as we know it. And this has been in the news a little bit, so we've been a little bit around the block with with this sort of breaking news, but it came up in mid-January. It came out as an, uh, sort of an announcement without a plan, um, so a, a good idea, but but nothing to back it up, that physicians, at least, would no longer need to undergo training, this the, the eight-hour CME training, to receive an X waiver to prescribe buprenorphine for OUD. So X waivers were sort of based in a good idea. They were, you know, meant to to move treatment for OUD into primary care before it became law. The the X waivers came came out of the data two thousand law. The only pres- the options for for prescribing medication assisted therapy were at methadone clinics, um, and you could you could dispense methadone in those clinics, but you couldn't actually prescribe it um, for the treatment of OUD. So X waivers gave us the chance to be able to actually treat. Uh, OUD in primary care, but it turned out that uh, that the eight hour classes and it was twenty four hours um, for for APPs, so eight hours for for physicians, um, and the associated DEA paperwork turned out to be a pretty big barrier to clinician uptake. So only about five percent of clinicians got wavered, and most didn't come close to treating the full number of patients that they were eligible to treat. And it's a progressive, so some could treat thirty. You could petition for higher higher numbers, a hundred or more. So in the meantime, unfortunately, as we know, deaths from opioid overdose have surged during the pandemic. More than 88,000 people in the U.S. have died, 27% more than, than the previous year. And these are numbers ending August of 2020. So what has happened in the past uh, week is that the actual plan now, not just an idea without a plan, but the actual plan has become effective April 28th. Uh, for the elimination of X waivers. Uh, it's been published in the Federal Registrar, and the plan is uh, no more eight-hour CME required if you want to prescribe buprenorphine. Any licensed clinician with a DEA number can prescribe. You still have to inform the DEA of your intention to prescribe, called a notice of intent to prescribe. Uh, you're still limited to 30 patients unless you request a higher number, but that will it, it opens the door for uh, prescription of of buprenorphine for treatment of opioid use disorders. So if you've seen that in the news, that's what's the, what the change has been. Uh, so again, you can seek out uh, your own own CME for if that's something to, that you want to add to your practice. Um, but some of those barriers uh, have, have been reduced. Well, that's good news, I think. Henry, comments? Yeah, I agree. This is good news. Um, uh, sometime in the past, we actually covered a, a systematic review of primary care treatment of opioid use disorders. And in that study, uh, we found things like you know very high levels of patient satisfaction compared to going to methadone clinics, um, but also higher rates of retention into treatment. And when you look at the data on medications like buprenorphine, Pernorphine, you know, we're looking at numbers needed to treat in the single digits to, um, uh, to, to prevent street drug use. And those medications are generally best, you know, while they're still taking 
it. And so if we can keep people in treatment, and the data shows that people in primary care are more willing to stay in treatment longer than going to substance use uh, clinics, that actually has is a big sea wave. And so anything that we can do to make it easier for clinicians to engage in treating opioid use disorders makes a ton of sense. Any final comments, uh, John? I wrote an editorial about this in Journal of Family Practice just last month, but the deleting the waiver had not come up yet. So I think I'm going to have to publish a little bit of an addendum. I urged primary care providers to get more involved. And so this is very good news. Excellent. Excellent. All right, Henry, we're going to hear about um, management of fractures. Yeah, so this next uh, poem by Choi and colleagues in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, the American version from uh, January, asks the question whether outcomes are similar when patients with acute avulsions at the base of the fifth metatarsal, uh, whether they're treated with hard-soled shoes or in short leg casts. So this was a single-blinded study of about 100 adults um, with these acute fractures. At the first four weeks, everybody was placed into a posterior splint to allow for the edema to decrease. At the end of that time, they then were placed either into a hard-soled shoe that was provided by the clinician or the short leg cast. They could weight bear as tolerated. Uh, the ones who were using the shoe could take the, the shoe off at night and for washing purposes so they didn't smell quite as bad when they took them off. And then they looked at what happened six months later, and the six-month outcomes were evaluated by researchers who did not know what the treatment assignment was. When they looked at pain, everybody had reductions in pain. The net effect, though, was only about a 1.3 millimeter difference on a 100 millimeter visual analog scale, so clearly not clinically important. Tiny difference. Um, but the people who were wearing the hard-soled shoes were able to go back to their pre-injury levels of activity almost a week earlier. Patient satisfaction was high in both groups, but they did comment that um, some patients declined to participate in the study because they didn't want to have the chance of being randomized to wearing the darn cast. So bottom line, if you've got a patient with a, an acute avulsion fracture at the base of that fifth metatarsal, um, you can put them into either a short leg cast or to a um, the hard-soled shoe if all you care about is pain. If you care about return to function, looks like the hard-soled shoe is better. And so, you know, this is in many ways for me, I have these nihilistic tendencies. And so minimalism is my way of life. And this kind of reinforces that. Minimalism, Henry, not nihilism, minimalism. <laughs> Um, skepticism, healthy skepticism. Um, yeah, you know, I, someday I'm going to see an orthopedic study where the more aggressive intervention was better, but it hasn't happened yet. Pretty much any time <laughs> no, they compare, have to wait. you know, PT with surgery or, you know, delayed surgery with early surgery, it's, you know, the more conservative therapy very often does better. And this is another example of that. Kate, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it says a lot that they, uh, that right off the bat, so, you know, patient satisfaction was the same in both groups, but right off the bat, they had taken out all the people who were like, I'm not even going into your trial if there's a chance that I would be randomized to a cast. So right off, you know, there's a lot of people who are like, if there's a ch choice between 
having a cast and not having a cast, don't put me in a cast. Yeah. Um, oh, so casts are awful. I was, uh, I spent much of my childhood in a cast. It feels like <laughs> it's miserable. It's miserable. Okay. All right. So we're going to turn to a COVID study and for our last poem, and that's uh, John's going to tell us about that. We're just full of good news today. I can't believe it that every one of our abstracts has a very positive spin on it. So here's this one. Uh, The title is mRNA COVID-19 vaccines appear safe in pregnant women so far. Here's the data. From December 14th of 2020 to February 28th of this year, 35,691 pregnant women enrolled in the CDC vSafety voluntary reporting system for COVID-19 immunizations. That's a part of the vaccine adverse event reporting system of the CDC. Of these women, 3,958 agreed to enroll in an additional pregnancy registry, which follows these pregnant women until delivery. So at the time of this report, 827 of these women had a completed pregnancy. There were 724 live births, that's 86.1%, 104 spontaneous abortions, 12.6% of the women, and one stillbirth. 96 of the 104 spontaneous abortions, though, occurred before 13 weeks gestation, which is what we usually see, so this doesn't seem out of line. How about the babies? Adverse events among the 724 live-born infants were preterm birth, 9.4%, small size for gestational age, 3.2%, and major congenital anomalies, 2.2%. There were no neonatal deaths reported in this group. Although there was no parallel control group, these proportions of adverse outcomes are very similar to pregnancy, pregnancy outcomes recorded in other studies prior to the COVID pandemic. These preliminary data, therefore, reassure us that COVID mRNA vaccines appear safe to use during pregnancy, although, of course, we need a much larger database and a comparison group to be absolutely certain. Kate, what are your thoughts? I think that this is going to really depend on people's baseline perception of risk. So this is going to be great for people who wanted, for pregnant people who wanted some evidence that it was safe for them to receive the vaccine, but it probably won't be enough for people who feel a little bit uncertain to begin with. They're, that they're going to want more bigger studies and they're going to want you know guideline bodies to, to have a, a clear, clear-cut guideline for them. So I think that it, it's a step in the right direction. Like you said, we're, we're going to wait for, for bigger and, and better studies uh, before getting those, those solid guidelines. Henry. I have two general comments. The first is that for women, this is generally encouraging news, but it is early days, as you both have pointed out. And I wonder if this would help to overcome any vaccine hesitancy. <clears throat> There are other concerns that women have, though, it, which in, in particular, it's not just about pregnancy outcomes. It's whether can I still become pregnant? And um, and then you've got the anti-vaxxers who think that their children will become cyborgs or zombies or something along those lines. Um, clearly, there are some some additional things that we need to um, gather more data on. 
The, the second is that if you step back in general, we're getting lots of encouraging real world data be, well beyond what the clinical trials are showing and not just for women. So for example, we just saw a report from the CDC that uh, people 65 and older, the vaccines are effective at preventing hospitalizations. So, so there's lots of general good news that we're seeing about the real world performance. Yeah, I did some maths the other day and looked at if you took in terms of hesitancy in general and, the, and the, also the clots that have been reported with the J&J, um, sort of the variant vaccine-induced thrombocytopenia, um, the, if you take a million women in, your tw- in their 20s, and you know, if you, there probably is maybe a rate of about 10 of those events at most per million younger women uh, who are vaccinated. But also, if you look at if half of them eventually develop COVID, half of those are symptomatic, case fatality rate of 0.2% in symptomatic women in their 20s, that's 500 deaths in an unvaccinated population, 400 of which would be prevented by the vaccine. So you're looking at 400 versus at most 10, somewhere between 2 and 10. So it's just orders of magnitude difference in terms of risk. But we're not very good at uh, in the media at communicating that. Uh, no. clearly and communicating about risk in general. And uh, it's so important. And yet uh, the media focuses on the, the unusual events, the, the outliers, and, and doesn't communicate the, the full picture, I think, unfortunately. So um, anyway, we're, but yeah, overall, pretty good. Four you know, reports and all good news in, in all of them. This is, must be spring is in the air and fish are jumping, you know. Um, <laughs> Cat anyway, fish are jumping, right. <laughs> Cat fish are jumping, cotton is high. Yeah, one of my favorite songs. Uh, the quiz answer is going to be brought to us by Henry. So the quiz again asked, which of the following have been found to be effective at preventing COVID-19 in persons at risk of contracting it? One, ivermectin. Two, ivermectin plus iota carrageenan. Three, hydroxychloroquine. Four, ramipril. Five, bromhexine. By the way, carrageenan is that Irish seaweed that's often used as a uh, thickener, uh, but also used in seaweed stews and things. So anyway, uh, so on April 26th, just a few days ago, the BMJ published its very first edition of a living systematic review, and it's going to be updated regularly. Uh, They used a network meta-analysis to try to evaluate data from 11 randomized trials of different products. Two of the trials that included ramipril and bromhexine did not have enough data so that they couldn't actually do the the analysis. Six studies, Mark, you're going to have to listen, evaluated hydroxychloroquine. Okay. Now, five of those studies were at low risk of bias. So, So five out of six good studies of hydroxychloroquine. And all the rest of the studies were kind of moderate risk of bias. Or um, So while the data on ivermectin itself looked okay in preventing infection, the quality of those trials was not great. And there was inconsistency in the data. So probably too soon to say anything. Now, hydroxychloroquine had minimal effect on preventing hospitalization, but it was statistically significant. One fewer per thousand um, um, participants and one fewer death per thousand participants. Uh, it turns out that it was not effective in preventing lab confirmed infection and caused more harms. So technically, the correct answer is three hydroxychloroquine, but barely. 
Boo, Henry. We're going to fire you. We're going to find somebody to replace you. Kate, so good to have you on board. Seriously, it's great to have you on board uh, going forward. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening today. Um, Here is the Earl for getting that CME credit again, iafp.mclms.net. And here's the boring crap they make me repeat every week. The Illinois Academy of Family Physicians is accredited by the ACCME to provide CME for physicians. The IAFP designates this podcast for 0.5 AMA Category 1 credits. The IAFP adheres to the conflict of interest policy of the ACCME and the AMA. You can read our complete disclosure on the IAFP website. Hope you all enjoyed today's discussion. Please tell your friends, rate us on iTunes. We'll talk to you soon with more primary care updates.